Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Arnold Kling. He blogs with Brian Kaplan at EconLog, which is part of EconLib, the Library of Economics and Liberty, which EconTalk is also part of. Arnold's latest book is The Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare. Arnold, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Arnold, your father recently passed away, and you had a lot of interesting and moving things to say about his life when you wrote about him at EconLog. One of the things you've reflected on is the medical care he received at the end of his life. Talk about what you learned from that experience. Well, you it's one thing to see statistics that suggest that there are problems with Americans' health care system. Like you'll read that there are so many thousands of um, people who die from hospital-borne infections. Uh, you'll read about very high medical error rates. And you know, Rob, you've had Robin Hansen on this show. You might want to link back to that podcast about sort of the netting out the harms that medical care does against the benefits. But it's quite another thing to actually see that up front. And that's that. I really had this searing experience with my father. In some ways, it's fortunate. Uh, I would say for the medical care people, and maybe for my peace of mind, that my father was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus in December of last year. And one thing about that is a very unforgiving cancer. Uh, once I read about it at the time, I said, well, you know, and my father is, was a political scientist, cared a lot about elections. I said, well, he's not going to live to see the next election. Uh, so that was in the background. But I say it's fortunate for the doctors that that occurred because I don't believe that's what he died of. Uh, they actually put esophageal cancer on the death certificate. He died in April. But I think he died of a uh, an infection that was uh, probably contracted in the hospital and made worse. So let me tell that story. Um, so he has this cancer in the background. That's going on. Uh, then in uh, early January, he was experiencing some pain in one of his ankles. And so he went to get that checked up, checked on. The doctor said, I think it's probably cellulitis, but just to make sure, let's have... A, an x-ray. So he goes for the x-ray. He fell down on the way to the x-ray, broke his hip. So then um, went to the, eventually the emergency room and then was admitted and had the uh, the hip operate on. They put a pin in and the surgeon said, you know, get back on your feet as soon as possible and you know, rehabilitate your hip. Uh, because he had a history of cardiac problems, the first place he was put was a cardiac intensive care unit after the hip surgery, uh, just to monitor that, and monitor his heart. And the, they kept him flat on his back for several days. And over the, that period, he developed bed sores, and I think ultimately the bed sores became infected. And sort of two months later, uh, I guess, or three, almost three months later, um, he died. So, a lot of one thing that I noticed was that over the two-week period from the time that he broke his hip over the next two weeks, he was in eight different units, 
and I could see that there was not really any continuity of care between those eight units. It was just like you know pushing them from sort of one uh, emergency to another, as it were, one procedure to another. Uh, so it was seeing that healthcare system up close, uh, seeing both the process being sort of incoherent and the outcome being something that I thought uh, almost surely increased his suffering and, in my opinion, which I could be wrong, uh, hastened his death. You know, that, w that was very different than seeing statistics. Um, you know, what I saw was incredible equipment, equipment that I would never have believed and never seen, lots of very well-trained people, lots of very caring people, uh, everyone tr trying in their own way to do the right thing, but a system that I thought was a failure and a breakdown. And we, we talk, uh, we've had a number of podcasts on the topic of specialization, and the American medical system is, of course, uh, undesigned. It is, uh, has a spontaneous emergent aspect to it, and yet it is also fiddled with and tampered with and attempted uh, control by many players uh, that affects the observed order or lack of order. But one of the characteristics of that system, which I think you're referring to that we might start with, is the power and weakness of specialization. So in past podcasts, we've talked a lot about how incredible specialization is in a modern economy. And yet in the modern hospital, we've got these incredible specialists who's, who, who are incredibly well-informed about their own particular um, expertise. But, but what is striking, I think, to the outsider, and I think part of what you're experiencing, is the, the lack of a generalist, the lack of, a, of someone, one way to say it is the lack of someone in charge of the whole person. Now, normally that's the patient. Uh, in theory, but often the patient isn't capable for, for all kinds of reasons of making that, not, not simply the obvious one that they're not medical experts. But in my experience, and it sounds like in yours, family members end up playing, if they're lucky, uh, if, if the patient's lucky, the role of general advocate uh, in this maze of specialization. And I want to suggest, and, and I want your reaction to this, that the specialization that we observe is not particularly healthy, and it is not what we would observe, I think, in a less interventionist system. With uh, By interventionist, I mean in terms of regulation and the incentives that regulation has put in place. Well, let me read a quote from a book. It's called Skin in the Game by John Hammergren with Phil Harkins. And this quote happens to just be similar to, to my point of view. It says, For the most part, in medical school and in their internships, Doctors are trained primarily as individuals. Chances are they are overachievers and strong individual contributors by nature, traits that are magnified through the very hierarchical weeding out process of medical school. Along the way, they're rewarded for being the best academically and for outcompeting their classmates and colleagues. They're taught to think for themselves, to be skeptical of the judgments and capabilities of others, and to rely on their own skills and intellect. As interns and residents, they're encouraged to outperform the other residents, work harder, go longer without sleep, and show up those around them with better diagnoses or treatment ideas. This does not lend itself to team-oriented behaviors in the operating room or on the hospital floor. 
so the the problem is that um, you start with the fact that there are certain types of patients that require team behavior. Um, probably most, the vast majority of patients don't. You break your arm, you don't need a, a team, you don't need a heart specialist and a you know, cardiac or a um, you know, lung specialist or whatever to deal with that. You just need somebody to fix the arm. A uh, kid has strep throat, they don't need a team of people, they just need somebody to do a swab, you know, swab the throat and so on. Uh, but most of the expense in the healthcare system goes for what I'll just use a non-technical term: complex patients. So somebody with diabetes who often has many complications, or people like my father who are in the very late stages of life, uh, and any or and people with chronic illnesses. And that's it's well known that those people account for seventy percent or more of the total expenses in the healthcare system. And uh, that requires something different than the individual doctor. Um, and a d sort of, a, I would say, a different form of order, as it were. I'm, I want to talk about three things. S a spontaneous order, a corporate order, and a breakdown of order. Uh, and what I thought I observed with my father's care was a breakdown of order. I think just, it, did what, it wasn't working right. Um, this morning I went to fill my tank with gas. There happened to be a lot of people at the gas station, which made me feel good because I, I had not been to that gas station before. I didn't know if its prices were good, but I assume they were based on the fact that there were a lot of people. But there wasn't, you know, I didn't have to wait, and I got gas. And for us, you probably remember thir 30 years ago in the 70s, where there, you didn't know whether there was going to be gas at a gas station, and that caused all sorts of disorder. People uh, filling their tanks uh, you know, when when they were three quarters full, because they they weren't sure that they would be able to get gas. People actually getting into long lines and maybe even fighting in the back of lines of gas stations. So that was a breakdown of order. Um, so, um, you know, there are breakdowns, and then there's spontaneous order versus corporate order. And an example of that is: suppose you wanted to find an article on public choice theory. Uh, you could go to the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, which is another part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and you would find an article by Jane Shaw on public choice theory. And that article is there because David Henderson planned and designed that uh, encyclopedia, and he commissioned her to write the article. He gave her deadlines. He made sure that she followed through, and he put that article up there. Or you could look for an article on public choice by going to Google or Wikipedia. And there you would see a spontaneous order. Nobody planned to have an article on public choice available on Wikipedia or on uh, Google, but you would probably find things there. Um, so that's those are examples of spontaneous order. And Henderson is corporate order. And I guess what I'm advocating for health care for these complex, pa complex patients is something like corporate order, where somebody designs a process, uh, divides up assignments, and uh, consciously tries to achieve an end result. And I think that's necessary in complex systems. If you uh, take a bunch of amateur carpenters and whatnot uh, and say, and put them in the back of your house and say, put up a deck, well, they might be able to do it. Uh, if you took that same group of people and said, put up a major office building, I think you would get a breakdown. And I think that's kind of what's going on with healthcare in complex patients, that the complexities of the patients are 
uh, overwhelming a sort of spontaneous system. Well, you know, the fundamental complex system that we're talking about at the root of all this is the human body. And what's one of the major challenges of any type of regulation, of course, is the law of unintended consequences. When there's a complex system and there's unexpected interactions or unforecastable or unpredictable interactions. So one intervention into the complex system of the body, either deliberate or accidental in the case of your father's hip falling, uh, often leads to a set of un predictable or difficult to disentangle effects uh, because the complexity of the body. I, I think it's important to, to make a, an observation that, that Hayek made, that when we talk about spontaneous order, we don't mean a world of no planning. Uh, you know, we don't have gasoline because some people just sit back and hope that it gets refined out of crude oil and then finds its way to gas stations. The, the gas station phenomenon that you talked about successfully in your experience this morning and contrasting it with what happened in the 70s is, in, in both cases, there was a lot of planning going on. Uh, in the, today's world, there's a lot of planning. It, that planning takes place within a corporate structure and within a small business structure of the, the local dealer, the local uh, gas station owner. So there's lots of planning. The real question is who plans? So there's often top-down planning within an organization that's competing with other organizations. And organizations obviously try different approaches. They try top-down. They try emergent order within their organizations. But I think what we've done in the United States that's so destructive, and I, I don't know the, the reason for this, and I'm not sure anyone knows it, but we can see if you have some insights into it. I, I don't. But what we've done in the United seems to me what we've done in the United States is we've, we've put up barriers to the kind of within-organization planning, what you're calling corporate order, that would make sure that the outcomes, for example, were good for the patient. There, there's, in a normal system, like your gas station store, you go to the gas station, they're out of gas, or you turn on the tank, you turn on the, the, the pump, and you instead of gasoline coming out, you get lemonade. Well, there's a feedback mechanism that, that, that works. One, you don't go back. Two, uh, you might sue them. Three, you might just complain, and they'd fix it. It's a whole bunch of things, that, that mechanisms for feedback that take place, both obvious, like complaining, not so obvious, like choosing not to go there again or telling your friends about it. Within the hospital, it seems to me that the, that the, the patient's uh, well-being, that unlike the gas station, there's no one in that facility who has an incentive to take care of that patient as opposed to what is the incentive that is there now, which is... The heart surgeon wants to make sure he doesn't die of a heart attack. That's how he gets judged. That's how he gets honored, rewarded, maybe literally, or, but certainly uh, non-literally in the, in the pride and, and respect sense. He gets rewarded when his patients don't get a heart attack. Uh, but if as a result of preventing that heart attack, he gives your father an infection, well, for some reason, the way that current system is, is our current system is structured, there's not as much of an incentive for him to worry about that. And that strikes me as very strange. Well, I think there, you know, it is a difficult question. I, starting at the simple business process level, which is sort of the where sort of Hammergren looks at it and where, where I, I'm looking at it, you know, we're looking at it as people who've been in, in a business world. Uh, and we've seen processes that were broken down and we've seen how they get fixed. And... Um, you know, just as an example, when I was with Freddie Mac, uh, people in the regional staff would sign contracts with lenders. Freddie Mac buys mortgages from lenders and then issues securities. 
and so the regional staff would, would sign a contract with the lender, and some of these would be very long-term contracts uh, that specified exactly how risk would be shared between the originators of the loans and Freddie Mac. And then uh, years later, it would turn out that under the terms of the contract, Freddie Mac was supposed to receive a lot of money in compensation from the uh, originators, but no one was keeping track of that. That all that information stayed with the regional staff, and sort of basically died uh, as soon as the contract was signed, wasn't maintained. And there, you know, there are things like that in, in business all the time. Those kinds of, of, of breakdowns in corporate order, and you you fix them. You do a reorganization. You ch change your business process. You. In, in, you build a new computer system. Or you go out of business because your competitor figured it out. You never did. And if no one figures it out, by chance, everybody can limp along <laughs> in this inadequate world. But the pressure of competition is going to force some of those folks either to figure it out or to, or to disappear. Yeah. And if, and if you know, that was a, a process that was sort of felt by the company but not by customers, and if you have a process that's felt by by customers and it hurts them then right away as, some, as soon as they see an alternative they go they go somewhere else yeah so that that process is at work and uh, what I'm suggesting is that um, that in healthcare it looks to me at you know from as if I were a businessman and um, you said and you gave me a hospital or let's say a business consultant and walked into this hospital i would suggest all sorts of reorganizations process changes new information systems and so on that would uh produce better outcomes and that's the, and and so what the question is the next question is then why doesn't this happen why don't the consultants come in rationalize the process reduce the errors and so on. And I think a couple reasons for that is you know, one is that this problem is relatively new. I think, you know, medical care has gotten more complex and the patients have gotten more complex. Yeah, they're the, older and yeah, we, they have more stuff wrong with them. Yeah, we, one of the things with the greater... <laughs> Which is a blessing. Right. Yeah. One of the things about greater longevity is that by the time people do start to break down their multiple causes then you know they're not falling dead of the coronary as much although we had a famous case the other day um but um, You're referring i assume to tim russer yes that, that we're we're taping this podcast uh on uh june what is it the 18th today yeah. it's june 18th 2008 and uh tim russer passed away about three or four days ago go ahead and um but that's people are living that, longer. Yeah, but that people were shocked at that. I mean, if, if a 58-year-old had died of a heart attack 30 years ago, no one would have been been shocked. But people just couldn't believe it. You know, my wife said, "Did he? I wonder if he knew. Did he know anything about this? Because it, it's so unusual nowadays." Uh, but the result of that is that by the time people do uh, reach an, an end stage, they often have multiple things wrong with them. We've had the increase in diabetes, uh, which is an, uh, another chronic illness. So. Or another complex illness, and it's a, a chronic one. So we, and then, and there are also just more things that people expect you to be treated for. Uh, you know, somebody I was having lunch with yesterday pointed out that you know nowadays people, if your child doesn't sit still in school, they expect you to be that to be a tre fixed. treatable illness. Get it fixed, yeah. Um, so for a variety of reasons, medicine has gotten more complex, but the 
sort of the lone wolf doctor or the specialized doctor hasn't changed. And the um, I think many people have pointed out that there is a need for a different approach, a more team-oriented approach, a more something where the the patient is the center, and then s- somehow the resources are applied to that patient in a managed way. Again, if you think about building a skyscraper, you get an architect, and above all, you get a project manager who coordinates who uh, does what, when, who deals with the inevitable glitches and makes adjustments to the schedule and so on. And that, that role is missing in healthcare. Okay, so let, let, let me... Let me comment, make a couple of comments. You know, one is I think your opening point is very relevant. It could just be it's really hard. Uh, so that, that's always a possibility. But I, I, as you say, I don't think that's, that's the whole story. Let me give you two analogies to the um, – or one analogy maybe to the um, – to a similar situation that's handled differently. Uh, making a car is a complex process. And – either because of the influence of the Japanese or because of management books, that has become a more team-oriented experience, is my understanding. Defect, in the, in the goal of, with the goal of preventing defects and of, of improving process, uh, workers have more autonomy and they work more together than they did 30 or 40 years ago in, in, in the American uh, automobile business, automobile manufacturing process. There's a big incentive again. If you if you didn't figure it out, you go out of business. Now let's take today's hospitals. I don't know enough about hospital uh, administration, but I'll give you two two things to think about and get your reaction to. Uh, I used to be at Washington University in St. Louis. I think your father was hospitalized in St. Louis. I don't know what hospital he was in, but Washington University's hospital is considered one of the top ten hospitals in America. It's considered that because of the research excellence uh, of the best doctors there. The chair of that hospital's board for a while when I was there, and I don't know if he's still the chair, I don't remember, but uh, I haven't seen it in a while, was Chuck Knight, who's the head of Emerson, the one of the most successful firms in American history. Now, he's one of the best top-down guys you can imagine. As it turns out, Emerson's not a particularly top-down company. It's a very emergent and, and very there's a lot of information that's used that bubbles up in their corporate culture. But... I assume that Chuck Knight is a good person, cared a lot about making that hospital better. I'm sure he did make it better while he was chair of the board. But I suspect there were limitations that went well beyond the complexity of the human body. And just to pick the most obvious one, why isn't it that when you walk into a hospital today as, a, as an elderly patient, you don't get an advocate, a, a, a gatekeeper, a um, a shepherd. Let's call it that person a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And as I suggested earlier, the family member often plays the role of shepherd, which is bizarre. Uh, usually overwhelmed with emotion, imperfect information, uh, a lack of familiarity with the particular hospital. So the, the family member makes a very inadequate shepherd. Why doesn't a hospital compete with other hospitals in improving this? Uh, forget the complications of a corporate top-down thing. Just having a shepherd, somebody who worries about interactions and multiple effects. One answer would be, well, it's not as productive as you might think. It's too expensive. Patients wouldn't be willing to pay for it. But, of course, we know that's not the case. Patients don't pay for their own health care. And the bottom line improvements in uh, in the hospital's uh, financial situation 
are not going to be particularly improved by adding that staff member. So it seems to me the incentives are just totally messed up. Is there anything more than that? Well, there there could be two things. One is that it's um, there's a tradition of the of that a doctor must be in charge. So this shepherd might not have the authority that they need. Let's um, make it a doctor. Um, that's another possibility, but that would be very resource costly, I, and I don't think it's necessary. I, I really think it it ought to be somebody else. But you you do need to you do need to step in, you know, from the top and reorganize the system, sort of change the doctor's role a bit, uh, make them subject to what I would call a project manager, what you're calling a shepherd. Um, but then let's go back to this point of who pays for it. If, it, it, it. What does hospital administration consist of? It consists of making sure the hospital gets paid. Who pays the hospital? Medicare, mostly, or private insurance. So all of their procedures are geared toward meeting the customer's need, where the customer is the insurance company or Medicare. And let's just face it, that's the customer. And... Uh, until the patient is the customer, you're not going to have patient-centric care. I just I don't see how you can. Uh, what you're going to have is Medicare trying from you know, Washington D.C. to somehow make things work that uh, hospitals act so- in some way in the interest of patients. If Medicare is thinking in those terms, although Medicare often has to think in terms of you know. Uh, making sure it stays under budget. I don't think Medicare thinks, but That's just an right. interesting uh, <laughs> uh, linguistic challenge in yeah. having this conversation. I would carry on. Yeah. Um, so the, the you know you have uh, you're trying to design things at a distance, and you know just an example. You know the the left's uh, holy grail for this, the grand solution is pay for performance. We'll get hospitals to focus on patients by defining what's a good outcome or what's a what's an appropriate procedure and rewarding hospitals and doctors for following the right procedure and i think there are tremendous practical problems with that and one of them is a reporting problem um, the hospital where my father died well on, the, on his death certificate it the cause of death is listed as esophageal cancer cancer of the esophagus I actually don't believe that's true. I mean, I think he would have died of cancer of the esophagus, but I think he probably died of a hospital-borne infection. I have a feeling one of the reasons that they, they put down cancer of the esophagus is that they didn't want to get dinged on a performance issue for having him die of a infection he got in the hospital. Right. So, when, when, so among other things, when you have the, the local people doing the reporting, you're going to get the, re- the reports manipulated. And that's just part of a, just a a broader issue that when you try to manage people's performance from a long distance from a central location, you're going to get gamed as the manager. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, let's move on to a different aspect of this, um, which is this, this um, really the political and the interface between politics and economics, this idea that, We've talked about that. You and I have talked about this outside the podcast. We call a moral quandary. We want people to be taken care of. Um, and yet, as we have through the political process, either responding to that general urge of the electorate that uh, people should be taken care of, or a more sinister story involving some specialized groups that are getting benefited, 
from the way the system is structured. We moved to a system where, the, as you say, the consumer is not the patient. And what we're forced into then is the kind of uh, response to that imperfection to try to get to what economists call a second best solution. Um, as you say, maybe imposing some sort of project manager corporate structure on the problem. There's been a lot of interest in in sort of best practices, uh, which I think is overrated as you, for reasons that you've mentioned, measurement and other reasons. But, but the idea that just, well, we just have to figure out the right cure, the right, the right procedure, just get a bunch of experts, or we'll go through an enormous amount of data and figure out what the best procedures are in, in certain settings, as if they were always the same, which, of course, individuals being extremely different. Actually, I think we ought to be moving in a different direction toward more specialized, personalized, customized care. So we're, we're, we're doing all these sort of um, rickety ad hoc fixes. Uh, is there any reason to think we could get to a more uh, effective fix at the bottom, given that moral quandary? Well, let's let's state the state this and maybe call it the basic moral quandary of healthcare, which is that we really instinctively want healthcare to be free, but we understand that the providers of healthcare need to be paid. So, uh, I think we want it to be free in part because we see people who need healthcare as being in distress, and we there's you know, a deep. Um, moral repugnance to taking advantage of somebody in distress and charging them money when they're in distress. Um, you know, I think sort of the usury laws come from, come from that, that you know, 2,000 years ago you weren't borrowing money to start a dot-com or to finance a budget deficit. You, when you were asking people for help, it was because you were sick you were or starving. <laughs> and, so, and so we have this repugnance to charge interest when and somebody's in a desperate situation. Similarly, we have this repugnance to charging people for uh, health care under the, this presumption that they're under distress. Uh, but at the same time, we do recognize that, boy, these providers uh, go to an awful lot of trouble to do... Uh, you know, to bring their services to bear, so they deserve to get paid. So what do you do? You set up a layer of insulation. Uh, and all over the world, uh, certainly in the industrialized world, over 80% of healthcare spending is paid for by third parties. In other countries, uh, more of it is paid for by government. But here, uh, you know, it's about 45% government, about 40% private health insurance. So what that sets up, though, is this, the, the fact that the hospitals and the healthcare providers have to respond to a large extent to the people who are paying the bills, who are not the customers. So you, it's or very, not the patients. Not, not the patient. Yeah. So the customer is the, the uh, is the payer, is the insurance company or Medicare, and you as the patient are not the customer. And I think that has problems. And I, I you know, my, as an economist, I want to step back, back and say, well, let's remove some of that insulation um, and have people sort of back away from their this moral repugnance of directly paying for health care services and get involved in paying for health care services, the advantage of that being that the service will then respond to you and not to some distant bureaucrat. Now, one of the examples that 
those of us who are uh, friends of the market like to point to is LASIK surgery, which is not covered by, um, typically by private insurance, is not covered by government uh, welfare programs of various kinds. And here's a place where we just let people make as much money as they can. And yet I'm told, and I'm not an expert on this, and I'd love to see a study of it. If someone out there has one, please send it to me, that LASIK has gotten cheaper and better uh, despite the fact that we rely on this grubby profit motive to sustain that market. And it's an interesting thing. Your eye is a pretty emotional part of your body. There, you know, there, there are a few others you'd put in the top five, but your eye is up there. And yet we have this tawdry system of advertising that we've encouraged and allowed. And, and uh, it's a normal economic you know, market, like, like the market for gasoline, maybe even more free than the market for gasoline, which has lots of other regulations. So it's interesting that that lesson, if it's true, that LASIK works pretty well relying on just a profit motive and direct payment where the customer is the patient, hasn't really caused people to say, hey, maybe this other way we do things, which I understand the emotional appeal, but when I think about it, and given that there are human lives at stake, maybe we ought to try a little bit more of those incentives. It's interesting. It doesn't seem to be very powerful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, then you mentioned another issue of the sort of the interest groups being dug in, and I think it's in... You, you also have that phenomenon. You have, you know, the doctors are kings in the current system, and the um, the main focus politically of doctors is to make sure they get paid. And so they've, you know, they will support universal health care, government health care, as long as they ensure that they will get paid. Um, and that's... The, so that's another factor. As you were mentioning it, you know, there's, you know, you talk about example. One of the excuses people give for healthcare being different is that it's complex. And I think we've talked about that. You know, there are other things that are complex. I don't understand. You know, when I buy shop for a computer, I sure don't know what I'm I'm shopping for. But I, I there are all these these devices that work. There's competition. There are guarantees. There are brand names. Brand names there are you know review articles. I can read reviews, um, and there are all these mechanisms that work that that could work in healthcare, um, but for, but we don't use them as much because we're we're not paying for it. We're doing going through uh, insurance, and so I, I it would be it would be neat to see how resistant people are to uh, the notion of paying for health care. That is, you know, is this issue of, well, that's very uncomfortable to, if you're under, dis if you're in distress, to, f to worry about having to pay for something, or if, uh, if people are willing to do it. The, the other point I'd make is, and this may be apply in the case of LASIK, is that a lot of these healthcare services that we buy, we don't buy really in desperate distress. So you go for a colonoscopy screening, my classic example of, you know, after age 50, you're not in distress, you're, go you're just going because 
Uh, you want to make sure that you don't have colon cancer, and you understand that if, if you catch it early, you can really do something about it. So it's a good idea to, to do the screening. Um, that seems like something where you know, it's not, you're not under severe distress. And, and I think somebody could make the argument in LASIK surgery that it's more elective. Well, there are a lot of things that are elective. I mean, even if you're under distress now, you have so many choices about uh, how that distress can be dealt with that there, there's a lot of health care that's elective. In my book, I talk about the gray area of medicine being very large, the, the, the area where uh, it's not absolutely sure that you don't need it, it's not absolutely sure that you need it. And with the, the, with so much of health care being in this gray area, then that we ought to be more receptive to subjecting that to market forces uh, and less to this insulation that we layer that we've set up between uh, patients and having to pay for things. Yeah, there's there's a temptation to say that the demand for healthcare is vertical. It's inelastic. I mean, because you pay anything. Well, you pay anything. Pay a lot to save your own life. You're, you pay a lot to save the life of your loved ones, but you wouldn't pay a lot to an infinite or anything close to a lot for LASIK surgery if eyeglasses work pretty well, even though they don't work as well as the surgery. And the same thing is true with the colonoscopy screening. You can take a chance. It's it's risky, of course. And but there, are, there are less expensive screening procedures that are not quite as effective, but still catch a lot of yeah. cancers. I will mention that that when we when we did tape our last podcast, it was right before I was going for my first colonoscopy colonoscopy screening, and I found the conversation uh, remarkably unpleasant, Arnold. But I kept that from you uh, at the time. <laughs> Something I just didn't want to think about, and uh, I put it off. Uh, I'm 53. And I had put off that screening for three years. Just I, I had an excuse, which not relevant for this conversation. But when I look at look at myself, I realized that wasn't really the excuse. The real reason I just didn't it's just unpleasant. I will tell uh, the listeners that relative to what I thought it was going to be, it was more like going to Disney World. Uh, it is one of the rare procedures, at least for me, that when they they say it's really no big deal. Uh, which usually means it's horrible, but you, but you know, it's not as horrible as you might think. It actually wasn't horrible, and uh, even the advanced part of it. So I, it w- was not unpleasant. So I took the pills. Don't take the liquid. Uh, for those of you out there who are over fifty, who've been putting off because it just seems unpleasant, it's just not as unpleasant as uh, as your mind uh, would imagine. It's it's not a day at the beach. It is not a day at Disney World. But relative to what you you're worried about, it it's, was surprisingly okay for me. So it, you know that raises the question of your point about the gray area. Raises the question: of, Is it imaginable that we could get to a world where at least some procedures were more market oriented, the grayer ones, uh, or at least in the hands where put the customer and the patient closer together for those things? And yet we seem to move in the opposite direction. Part of it is a bootlegger and Baptist problem, right? We, state mandates, uh, which we've talked about before on this on this podcast, state mandates where. The state requires that if you offer a health care insurance, health insurance policy, you have to cover certain things. Those lists get longer, not shorter. So, uh, and that's a combination of the self-interested providers of the product with those who are actually hoping and worried that people won't take care of themselves, et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot of general propaganda saying that a good insurance, uh, good, good health insurance covers more, you know, that where the economist would say good health insurance is catastrophic insurance, which in effect covers less, and you know that's that's a conflict that uh, you know obviously I'm on the side of the economists on that one. 
So, so let's shift gears. We're on the general topic of healthcare, and um, you have some interesting insights on the uninsured, which is always a uh, uh, a big issue in uh, election years. I'm sure we'll hear about it this year. Well, the you know what you hear is that the uninsured are at risk, and the rest of us are not, and we're all lucky. But in the grand scheme of things, just about everyone's at risk in the healthcare finance system. And I explain it this way: the uh, employer-provided health insurance, it, that system is unraveling. Uh, too much of employee compensation is going to health care, and that's causing all sorts of problems. It's causing uh, you know, huge wage differentials between people who uh, don't work for corporations and do. And so you, if you're healthy and you want a high wage, you leave your job to become a consultant uh, because you get, get more take-home pay. If you're unhealthy, you're scared to death of losing your job, and so there. So that system's unraveling, uh, and so you can't say that people who are under that system are not at risk. And then, in some ways, those the the system that's at biggest risk is Medicare because it's uh, projected by the Congressional Budget Office, by the Medicare trustees, by anyone who looks at it as being sort of bankrupt. And so, um, so that so everyone's at risk. It's not just the uninsured. Yeah, so the the uh, a lot of uh, of you out there in the listening audience have emailed me about the impending um, train wreck of Medicare uh, and Social Security. So let, let me ask you about that, Arnold, while we're on the subject, because I think it's important. I I think people have in the back of their mind that. Those numbers that you're talking about from, say, the Medicare trustees or the Congressional Budget Office, they forecast these enormous um, structural deficits as the population ages. And it, it strikes me, I don't see that as much of a crisis. Um, it's pretty obvious to me that we, we will choose not to afford the level of care that we have insulated people from. And we'll do something different. The political process, as that train wreck gets closer, will lower the benefits, raise the tax rate, do a mix, probably a mix of stuff. The inherent bankruptcy of the system isn't what's threatening. It's the political fight that will have to take place. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly agree. I, well, there's a, It's a great opportunity to invoke Stein's law, that something can't uh, go on forever, it'll stop. And uh, what can't go on forever is, as the Congressional Budget Office points out, is that health care uh, spending rise relative to GDP uh, and the government continue to pay for it, um, you know, because that, that's, that, that's got to stop. And because eventually it'll consume three hundred percent of GDP, which is yeah, not, I, I, and, and, which is arithmetically impossible, right? And, and in fact, I think the 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 CBO projection that I have in mind goes to about two thousand eighty, and just extrapolates the recent you know relative increase in, in healthcare spending. And by two thousand eighty, it's it's already at one hundred percent of GDP. So it's it's sort of within sight in some sense. And I'd love for it to be inside of you and me. <laughs> seventy-two, a mere seventy-two years from now, I'd love to be part of that crisis. Uh, well, yeah, maybe, one hundred and twenty-five. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. <laughs> it's a possibility. Uh, poss possibility. Not zero. Uh, the longevity is going up at a rate of quarter year per year, and it, it, it could end up going faster <laughs> yeah. uh, if some people's uh, views are correct. Anyway, um, so but 
the way it is most likely to be resolved, the, the most tempting way to resolve it is uh, to just keep cl- clamping down on Medicare. Um, that is, on, on, sorry, on Medicare, sorry, clamping down on uh, reimbursements to doctors under Medicare. That, you know, the way that, that, that the Medicare has been kept afloat so far has been by squeezing and squeezing on that. And so what the net result of that is doctors are leaving the Medicare system. They're not treating, they're refusing to treat Medicaid patients. And so we're, you know, one way or the other, it seems like no matter what we do, we seem to be headed toward a two-tier system, a system where people, uh, get healthcare paid for, but get sort of, the the dregs of of who will actually care for them, and a system where people who are willing to pay out of pocket uh, in order to get the best care, and you know it, it's just a question of how we get get there and and how ugly that process is going is going to be, but I think if we just go on autopilot or political autopilot, I think where we end up will be these a uh, system where people who uh, use government funds, you know, who rely on Medicare and Medicaid, get uh, poorer and poorer choices of doctors, fewer and fewer doctors agreeing to see them, and uh, other people having to pay more and more in order to ensure that they're seen by a doctor. But those who are paying more and more will have at least be part of a system where the incentives are a little bit better for, for quality. Um, it's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting forecast. For our um, non-American listeners, and maybe for some of our American listeners, Medicare is the government program that subsidizes health care for the elderly. Medicaid is the government program that subsidizes health care for the poor who are not elderly. Of course, many elderly are poor, but but of the non-poor elderly. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier because that reminded – your observation reminds me of it. You said in the current system, the doctor is king. Most of the doctors I know don't feel that way. They, depending how old they are, they went into medicine with a certain uh, romance, inevitably, uh, either about the experience or about the financial um, rewards or the ease of the experience. And many of them are disillusioned, uh, angry, bitter, uh, not not to the point where they sit around grousing all the time, but it's clear that that the world has changed and that who is king is either that Medicare uh, bureaucrat or the, the lawyer uh, who is suing them uh, for malpractice and their malpractice fees rise steadily. Um, it is a system of players, medical people, legal people, administrators, bureaucrats, and patients, where there's certainly that system has not been designed by anyone by how those people interact. And I don't think, again, the incentives are necessarily there. For that system to emerge in a way that's attractive. Let me give you another quote from this uh, same book. Give us the title again. Again, it's uh, Skin in the Game by John Hammergren. I don't think it's an outstanding book, but uh, there, are some, there are some things that, I, that resonate very well with me. Here's one. Consider that the average primary care physician has 2,500 to 4,000 patients, works five to seven days a week, takes emergency calls 24 hours a day, and often sees patients in the hospital from 9 to 5 on weekends. So, yeah, we have a, a system where um, the, it's, it's extremely burdensome on doctors, um, and, 
but when I say doctor is king, I think I, that we have the doctor is the gatekeeper for uh, pharmaceuticals. The doctor is the decision maker in the uh, in the hospital. In my father's hospitalization, every you know, I said he was in eight different units. In each in each unit, the doctor in charge of the unit was in charge. So that's why there's no continuity of care. So. I, you know, so why is it that we don't have this shepherd or project manager in in charge uh, with those, you know, of those eight units? In part because the the doctor doesn't want to give up the control. the The head of the unit doesn't want to have to be told what to do. Um, so, in some ways, you have to reconcile their desire to have a more sensible workload with this with what i see is this this need to be in control uh if they would allow other people to be involved in let's say prescribing drugs or making decisions then they would have less work they would they could they'd spend fewer hours working and patients probably would be better off but they'd have to lose this sense of being in total control me me doctor me in control yeah again i think the the market would normally have curbed that desire, um, even though we all might have it to be a control. The market often forces people to give up that control because the incentives are such that doctors who don't give it up aren't going to be successful. And in the current system, unfortunately, those uh, those are not there. You know, there's another model besides the shepherd would be a doctor who's more of a generalist. Um, whether that doctor is the shepherd or not, but but it's it's interesting that as you say, there were eight units. There's, they're all in the unit. There, there's no, there's no cross silo, cross specialist uh, people. Everybody's within their own silo, within their own unit. There's a very interesting article. Uh, it was in the New Yorker. I hope we can find it online. I'll put it up if we can by Atul Gawanda, who goes to sit with a doctor who's, I think, a gerontologist, a doctor who specializes in old people, which means they're not very specialized. And that was his point of his article goes with the doctor to see a patient alongside this doctor to, to, to watch a patient interact with the doctor. The patient, I think, has a tumor of some kind and and is coming to the doctor for health, improved health. And the author, Atul Gawanda, the doc, who's also a doctor, uh, presumes that he's going to see a uh, prescription of chemotherapy or radiation to solve the tumor. But instead, the gerontologist's first question of this very old person who's coming in to see him is uh, take off your, I want to take off your shoes and look at your toenails, which is kind of shocking at first. Why would that be relevant for the tumor? And, but it turns out that this poor woman can't, because she's, I think in her eighties might be 92. She, she can't clip her own toenails anymore. Uh, she can't bend over and reach her toenails. And as a result, she's at risk of, of falling down as her toenails get longer and she's going to have trouble with her shoes and her balance and she's going to fall down and she's not going to be able to get up. Uh, not just going to, she's not going to just break her hip. She's not going to be able to, to get up and, and, and live. And Gawanda's point is we need more gerontologists, we need more generalists. And certainly I think that's true because that's another way to deal with the complexity. It's not just to encourage communication within the system. It's the other, another way this problem would get solved in a, in a typical complex system would be there are people who specialize in complexity in, in the whole picture. And in the healthcare system, other than, say, a gerontologist, um, 
that doesn't happen. Yeah, and uh, that's a great article. I do hope you find it. Um, and it's a very important point, and it's something that I saw clearly <laughs> with my father, uh, that you know, a gerontologist clearly could have done a lot um, from even before he broke his hip, I mean, to even to, to, to spot his problems with balance and to come up with solutions. There are all sorts of things that a gerontologist could do. And you have to, but then look at, the, at our system, why, and, and one of the points in Gawanda's article is actually the number of gerontologists is declining. Uh, it's not increasing. Um, and uh, either the, I either read that there or I read it in Shannon Brownlee's book, Overtreated. Um, but, uh, you know, what can we do about that? You know, why, why doesn't that work better? Well, look at how doctors are reimbursed. They're reimbursed for procedures. And, you know, ha saying, take off your socks and let me look at your toenails is not a procedure. It's not something you can write down. It's not, there's no code for that. You can yeah. bill Medicare for. So, um. Isn't it ironic? Sorry to interrupt, but isn't it ironic? That, that those of us who defend the market and defend profit as an incentive, on the other, we're always defending our this. We have, we're on the moral we have the moral low ground, right? <laughs> you know, the other view says we, we we've got to act as a community to come together and take care of people who can't afford to pay for it. And look what it's led us to. It's led us to treating doctors like like day laborers who are paid by the piece. They're, they're, this bizarre idea that you would reimburse doctors based on what they literally do, not the outcomes, not their patients' well-being, their happiness. It is ex an extraordinary tragedy. Yeah, we, we pay them by the code, <laughs> uh, but, you know, by, by, by filling out the forms properly on the code. And uh, no, that is, it is an ironic, it, it is ironic, and I think it, what it does say is that for all the attempt to do better than a market, what we've done is created a breakdown. Just as the price controls, which might have been well-intended for gasoline in the 1970s, ended up creating an absolute breakdown in the gasoline market, uh, the, you can say that we have, what we've created in healthcare is a breakdown. It's not a community order. It's not a corporate order. It's not a spontaneous order. It's a breakdown. Well, we're almost out of time. Let's talk about your father uh, in closing. Your father was a political scientist, and uh, he had a lot of interesting observations um, on the political order, and you shared some of those with the readers at EconLog. I'd like you to talk about them uh, as we close here. He had a very um, provocative way of looking at the political process. Well, my father definitely believed in interest group politics. Um, he definitely thought it existed. Uh, recently, I've seen a couple editorials in the Washington Post complaining about interest groups take, you know, taking over the housing bill or uh, acting uh, against free trade. And uh, my father's view of interest group politics was that it was the rational core of politics, that these people, that unlike perhaps other actors, that interest groups were behaving rationally. So he would sit back and look and just say that that's how the game is played. I, we were uh, baseball fans in St. Louis, and uh, you know I could imagine him. You know, let's say it's late in the uh, game, the eighth inning, close game. The card, let's say it's tied, and the Cardinals have a runner on third base with less than two out. He might look at you and say, well, you think Tony La is going to try a squeeze bunt here? 
and uh, if if they they did try to squeeze bunt and the run scored, my father would say, "You see, that's the way the game's supposed to be played." And he would, I think, say the same thing about observing special interests trying to load up a housing bill with uh, favors for countrywide funding and other big companies. He'd say, isn't that the way the game's supposed to be played? Yeah, those of us who, who want it to be played differently um, sometimes get, I think, angry or frustrated or outraged at the way it's played, but... Um what I liked from what you wrote about your father in, in that post was that why would you expect it to be anything different? And why would you get mad about it? He didn't get mad about it, right? He no. just saw it as a natural order of things. Yeah. That, that just, that's just his view of how, how politics is going to be played. It's inevitable. Yeah, it, It's a healthy um, – I found that to be a, a somewhat healthy uh, antidote to – some of my uh, angst over over the political process. Well, I think one one conclusion that follows from that is, is don't expect that if your favorite white knight is elected, that it's going to change. Yeah. Uh, or your uh, African American knight, as yeah. it were. Now it's um, the, the rules of the game are what are what uh, affect the the play, not not the players, and that's. Uh, that's a painful reality that uh, most of us have trouble absorbing. But at one point, I think he referred to, to some uh, viewpoint that, that I associate with myself as pathologicals. Am I remembering that correctly of your father? Some, it was just this outrage issue that, that only a, a strange person would be outraged over this. Well, his, he, I think he views those of us who are uh, sort of ultra-libertarians as sort of, uh, sort of pathological. He, he sort of said... That you know, think of politics as kind of like this country club where the people on the inside scratch each other's back and shake each other's hands and are kind of smug and pleased with themselves and help each other out. And then there are the people on the on the outside who you know can't get in, who maybe occasionally try to throw a brick through the window. And, and that that would be his picture of the libertarian. <laughs> um, he'd rather be on the inside in the country. As long as there's a country club, you know, don't don't assume that you can tear down the country club. Just Join it. Try to try to get into it. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting perspective. It's not mine, and uh, but it but it's not fascinating. My, not mine either. It's one of our differences. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> my guest today has been Arnold Kling, uh, blogger at EconLog, author of The Crisis of Abundance. Arnold, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.